Associated Press, December 21st, 1973, New York City. The script appears strange at first. Its directions are for the ear, not the eye, and say things like, Doorbell on, footsteps. Doorbell opened, traffic in background. That traffic noise is 25 years old, laughs Jimmy Dwan, a veteran CBS sound effects man. You can hear a doorman shouting on it somewhere. That doorman, he's been dead 20 years. Duan's recorded sound effects are old, but not his script. It's of 1973 vintage, written solely for radio. Yes, radio. It's part of a brave new effort by two networks to bring back, in limited form, the golden days of coast-to-coast -coast radio drama that most everyone remembers, but hasn't heard in more than a decade. The Mutual Broadcasting System fired the first shot Monday with The Zero Hour, a 30-minute, five-night-a-week thriller serial hosted by writer-narrator Rod Serling of Twilight Zone fame. Mutual, which says it has 630 affiliates, bought the series after lengthy studies proved there existed a sufficient market for radio drama on a network basis. Advertisers liked the idea too, according to Mutual's president, C. Edward Little. We got a tremendous amount of client interest after we announced it, adding that the show will be fed from Mutual's Washington, D.C. headquarters each weeknight at 7 p.m. We feel that we'll start off with 150 to 200 stations. The series will be offered on a first refusal basis to mutual affiliates. They also said that if the show clicks, other radio projects, such as new comedy or anthology series, may follow. But they emphasize that such shows are strictly in the talking stages. Jay Sharbat. If I might tell you an X-rated radio show that I did, live, it was Arch Obler's Lights Out, featured Agnes Moorhead and a man named Wally Mayer, and I had a supporting part. I was a scientist, as I often was a scientist. We had an East Coast and a West Coast program. We on the uh, West Coast would do a show, for instance, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon so that it could be heard at 8 o'clock in the evening on the East Coast, and then three hours later we would have to do it at 8 o'clock live again for the West Coast. And conversely, people who did shows in New York would do shows at 12 midnight so it would reach the West Coast at 9 o'clock. Now that was their repeat live show. I emphasize live as I go back to the Lights Out experience. Now this was at 5 o'clock in the afternoon to be reached uh, East Coast at 8 o'clock. And the story this particular day was a giant chemical that had gotten loose. Lights out, as Arch Obler shows are always scary and horrific in science fiction. And a giant chemical had gotten out somehow, and huge holes in the countryside developed. So this one scene involving Agnes Moorhead and Wally Mayer and myself was a group of scientists coming to this series of holes, and we looked at it, and my line was, hmm. That's a strange chemical reaction. And this is live. Now, if you recall, this happened to be, incidentally, the very same studio when I walked in and won my part on Bethel Meriday four or five years before. And in that very same booth was sitting Arch Obler and the engineer and the secretary and a production man or lady. 
So we are, we're on the air and on comes the scene and now is my line. Now Agnes is standing right in front of me, facing me. The booth is here and I'm standing here. Wally is there. Agnes is right here and I'm standing opposite. This is 44 Mike and my line is dialogue, dialogue, line, and then my line is, hmm, that's a strange chemical erection. And, then, <laughs> and I, I looked across the mic at her and I mouthed, naturally whispered, did I say that? <laughs> and Agnes nodded. And I looked to my right and in the booth, nobody was in the booth. They were all down on the floor. <laughs> And it seemed like hours had occurred. It was only a second because naturally, the professionalism of Wally, whom I think had the next line, he immediately answered the line he should answer and the people didn't know. And there was never a call from the East. Did I hear what I heard? Nothing. Because they may have thought they heard, and that's a strange chemical reaction. reaction. Three hours later, we had to go back and do it again live for the West Coast. And my hand was shaking like this, you know. But I did it, I did it right. Now that really happened. You've heard of other bloopers and you've heard of things for the past few seasons. That really happened. You know Glenn Hall Taylor? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book, you know. He, mm -hmm. wrote, he wrote in about <clears throat> showing how unconscious we were about anything except just our voice and doing the lines. I was very pregnant with my son. And finally, instead of, I was, this was on Silver Theater and mm -hmm. I worked mm -hmm. regularly, I was on every week. So finally Glenn Hall said, uh, you know, you're looking a little bit pregnant so I think maybe we better just, just let you do the commercial. So I said, oh, I'm glad to get the money, you know, and be on the show. It was for Silver, uh, uh, International Silver, or one mm -hmm. of the Silver companies. And we never thought anything about it. I got up to the microphone, you know, in front of out, a studio audience, right in front of yeah. a big studio audience, mm -hmm. big CBS studio. And I had a line that says, "It's lovely, and yet it's a bit frightening. Tomorrow I'm going to be Mrs. Anderson." And somebody <laughs> in the audience went, <laughs> <laughs> and they you could just hear this. And Glenn Hall in the glass booth fell right down on the floor, just hid right behind the I never thought a thing about it at all. And I kept my poise, of course, and went on to the end with this commercial. But that was the end, needless to say, of my appearing. From then on, they put me behind the curtain. But that was funny. That was really funny. Now, the commercials, you, know, you just mentioned, they put you behind the curtain. The commercials were often done... Yes, away Lux, from the Lux they did. They were always done off the stage. Mm -hmm. yeah, it was interesting. The studio audience didn't, they may have heard that, yeah. but they didn't get but, to uh, see it. But many the of them were also done right in front of the audience. Mm -hmm. They would mm -hmm. just stop, you know, the music, and then they would come uh -huh. and do, do the. They did that on Life of Riley. Mm -hmm. The girls would read the uh, commercials or the men. Question. Yeah, you, they, you alluded to this earlier, Mary Jane, but I'd, I would like you to tell an Arch Obler story. Oh, well, I, he always carried a dirty little poodle with him, I remember. You <laughs> <laughs> remember that? Oh, a filthy little dog. <laughs> and, uh, well, he was 
very uh, protective of his material, and uh, he, it, it was just, it was interesting. It just wasn't very exciting working for Arch, really. He was, uh, for me, Elliot worked a lot with him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, he thought Elliot was, the, you know, the best, and he was. But uh, I, he was just strange <laughs> to me. John Dunning asked Rosemary DeCamp about working for Arch Obler, and, and Rosemary DeCamp said, I remember we used to uh, go out for food or whatever in between performances, and, and then from time to time he'd have us over at his house, and I always remember he served the most dubious food. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, here's that famous voice you've heard so often on Twilight Zone and Night Gallery. It gives me a great deal of pleasure to welcome for you here live and unrecorded a distinguished writer, producer, narrator, Mr. Rod Surly. candid as I can be. They said, we're going to stop production for a while because we need some backing. And I said, okay. And they called up and they said, we're going to be on Mutual now. We've sold the package to Mutual. And then I said, swell. And then I never heard another word. So I called a friend of mine who knew something about it and said, what happened? And they said, well, they figured out, they watched you and it seemed like you'd read a script, and then uh, you'd make a couple of marks on the page with your pencil, and then you'd made a couple of phone calls, and there were actors there, and then you pointed to people every once in a while. And uh, they looked at the money they were paying you to do this, and they figured they could do it, so they took the money, and they're doing it. They're not doing it. The show got canceled. <laughs> it looks easy, but it's not. Yeah, they cut it to a half hour, and they play... The unions got after him. Everybody started hitting him. They started repeating him and not paying for the repeats, doing all kinds of stuff. And they really cracked down on him. But, you know, it's a terrible thing. There's nothing wrong, really, with what they did, except that they lacked the wisdom to say that if they didn't know about something, they ought to ask somebody who did know. Once Mutual purchased the rights to the Zero Hour, they removed Elliot Lewis as director, and Jay Colos no longer had anything to do with the production. Both had good things to say about each other, 
but not for mutual. But that was mutual that did yeah. that then. Jay wouldn't have done that. But you know, a terrible thing, and you have to insist upon it, you have to be nasty. If you're in creative control, you have to be in creative control. Whatever happened, I'm, ha I'm pleased that the Sears thing worked. But my letter of agreement said I was in complete and absolute creative control of everything. I got a note from them once, and they said, kill this script. One note happened once. And I called them back and said, you can't say kill this script. You have to tell me why. You know, this is not something that we just make up. You can't work that way. So at a meeting, I explained to them that there are only really three precious things in that business. And the first was the idea, and the second was time, and the third was money. And if they had a script there, and they said, kill the script, they weren't observing any of the three things. There was some reason. There's nothing wrong with tearing down a fence. But the wise man will first inquire why it was put up, because it may be that there's no longer a reason for the fence, but it may also be, if you don't ask the question, that you're letting loose a bunch of saber-toothed tigers, you know. So ask the question. And for somebody like the guy at Mutual or Colos, Colos is a great advertising man. I would no more think of walking in and running his advertising agency I don't know anything about an advertising agency. Well, that's actually very nice, and I did not know that. I lost track of Elliot after uh, we turned over to Mutual. And also, uh, in looking back, I didn't really appreciate, uh, I mean, he was phenomenal in his work as a professional, as a director and, and all that, but I didn't really appreciate who he was until later, until I really started to... I mean, I knew his background a little bit, but he was an icon. Are you ready for the ultimate test? Are you safe? The time is now on the Hollywood Radio Theater. This is the Zero Hour. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater, presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's best-selling novel of the pursuit of a damned couple. The wife of the red-haired man. Starring Patty Dugaston. John Astor. 
for the concluding episode of The Wife of the Red-Haired Man. After seven years in prison, Hugh Rohan has returned to claim his wife, Mercedes. In a confrontation with her second husband, Albert Turner, Rohan panics and murders Turner. Out of her love for Rohan, Mercedes Turner collects her jewels and her fur coat, and together the lovers flee. But the years in prison have changed the young red-haired boy into a hollow, broken man. Two New York City detectives, scores of homicide, and Williams of the 19th Precinct have been assigned to the case. After long weeks of painstaking work, they've traced the couple to Kansas City. But once again, Mercedes Turner and Hugh Rohan evade them by splitting up. She to take a bus to New Orleans, he to drive their car alone. But first, this word. Blocks had been set up on highways leading to New Orleans, but the police were looking for two people in a gray compact car, and the bus I was on was stopped only long enough for an officer to question the driver. He was waiting for me in the nearly deserted hotel on Tupelo Street. He was in bed, his temperature raging. He seemed fuzzy with his fever, although he did struggle out of bed to greet me. So glad to see you. I thought you weren't going to come. You're sick. Oh, no, it's, it's just a cold. I froze driving that heap without my coat. You were right about the roadblocks. Come on now. Get back in bed, honey. Okay. Oh, that's better. Whew. It's hot. I'll get some aspirin. No, 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 that's okay. Stay with me. That's the most important medicine. That you stay with me. All right. What about the roadblock? Well, they stopped me. If I'd had my gun, I'd have shot my way through, but they didn't even ask questions. Man alone, blue car instead of gray, different plates. Hugh, you, you said you would have shot your way through? I told you, Mercy, I won't go back. And I won't be separated from you again. Here. 
Christmas present for you. Perfume. My favorite perfume. You remembered. I can't ever forget anything about you. You want me to ask where you got the money? All right. Where? Kansas City. I had a part-time job. Stock boy. Just to buy me a Christmas present. Is there a better reason to work? I think it's the best present. Oh, I have something for you, too. With a bowl trimmed in silver. You remembered. Honey, remember before we were married? You told me if you had me and you were a doctor who smoked a silver trimmed pipe, you'd be content. That was all you wanted. Yeah. Merry Christmas, honey. <laughs> you don't, please. I please don't cry, please. What happened? Mercy, what happened? I don't know. Life. Life happened. It's so unfair. Yeah. Mercy, you, you remember I told you that I knew what the cop was thinking? Do you remember? Yes. Well, we got through the roadblock, but he hasn't stopped. He's on to us. He knows what we're planning. Shh. Yeah, no, he's going to find me. And you know? Shh. Hugh, please. Shh, please. When he finds me, I'm going to kill him. Rohan and the woman got through the roadblock somehow. They probably repainted the car and changed the place once again. Split up, perhaps. Only one of them was in the car when it passed the block. Scores and I went straight into New Orleans. I knew my man by then well enough to know that he needed a port city from which to escape the country. Now they'll ship out from here. Yeah. Well, they'll sure have a fantastic selection of ships. They're all covered. Every ship, boat, plane, bus, everything's covered. Well, you know, Will, you're assuming they're here in New Orleans. They're here. I'll tell you something else. I'll be looking for passage to an English-speaking country, someplace where they won't be conspicuous. So, what's the game plan? We're here. We wait. They've got to move. They can't stay. And the moment they try to leave the city, we've got them. Murder one. Self-confidence. Self-confidence is the thing that drives a man on to his goal. Self-confidence makes a man stand up and face the most adverse conditions. Self-confidence is what Connections host Arthur Albert has. If you've listened often, you must know that uh, uh, I may be wrong, but uh, you'll forgive me for defending myself. I don't think you're being fair to me. Arthur Albert has self-confidence. That's why he can exist successfully with his paranoia. If the system tries to get Arthur, he'll be ready. You can be ready, too. Listen to Connections, weekday mornings at 11 o'clock on WRVR.
Be the first on your block to admit that you're paranoid, just like Arthur. I don't see myself that way. I'm not even sure that, that, um, uh, that I, you know, a lot of words bother me. I think that's too quick a judgment. The bazaar with pizzazz that's definitely African is called Ashanti. Ashanti Bazaar at 65th Street and Lexington Avenue, where folks with flair shop. I'm Gene Callender. I'm president of the New York Urban Coalition, and I shop here frequently. I like their um, unique designs. I, I, they made, made dashiki suits for me, and they've made um, robes for me to use in the pulpit, and uh, I just think it's a swinging place. It's a unique store. I don't, I don't know of any store like it. There's no other store like it. Ashanti. from the hotel the next morning, although Hugh still had a fever. I found an old rooming house, a private place the police would overlook. We were the only paying guests. It was a marvelous old home run by an ancient southern lady who appeared too frail to keep up such a place. But she cleaned and cooked and tended her overgrown garden. And for two weeks, Hugh and I didn't stir from that house. Finally, of course, Hugh had to make contact with Bert Crossley, the convict he'd known in prison the man who'd get us our passports. We were disappointed to find that Bert was back in prison, but he had a brother, Whip, who owned a bar just outside the Vieux Carré and might be able to help us. He went to see him. Friend of Bert, Brother Bert, huh? Come on back to my office. What do you want? I I served time with Bert in Bordeaux. I'm uh, I'm Red Cargill. Let's get rid of a question. You hot? Plenty. I and my wife want to get out of the country. With a lady along, that makes it rough. I can pay for it, rough or not. You you have five grand. That's what it'll take for two passports. I have it. Where do you want to go? Australia, New Zealand, any place they speak English. England? No, no, not England. Or Canada. Okay. Don't come back here again. Where can I reach you? At this number. That's where the thing is. I don't know how long it'll take, but when I call you, be ready to move fast and have the five grand ready. Agreed? Yes, agreed. Scrolls and I sat there for three weeks. There was no sign of Rohan or the woman. Hotels, nightclubs, planes, trains, buses, ships, all covered, not a trace. I wasn't worried yet. I knew Rohan was someplace in the city. I could feel it. Sometimes he seemed so near, I half expected to bump into him around the next corner. Scores, however, had a problem. I gotta get back, Will. Homicide bugging you? Well, the office is swamped. Yeah. When are you leaving? Flight this afternoon. What about you? You gonna stay? You can depend on it. We waited for Whit Crosley's call, afraid to leave the house for a minute. One of us must always be close to the phone, Hugh said. As the days passed, he refused to sleep, certain that Crosley's call would come in the middle of the night and he wouldn't hear it. And so his tension increased directly because of his lack of sleep. He paced the room continuously, back and forth. 
Pausing only to listen for a telephone that never rang. Please, honey. Please lie down. Has that cop gotten to him? Is that what's happened? How could he? Because he knows what I'm doing. I told you that. I told you he knows everything I think, every move I make. You... Hello? Cargill there. Mercy, it's him. Listen. Yeah, yeah. Get down here right away. You're leaving an hour. Just you. But my wife... Listen, no time to waste. Can't get you to Australia, but a ship I know. Standing off. Gonna drop a crewman for an emergency operation. I can fix the captain. Where to? Ireland. You better take it. The ship's not berthed here, but I can get you aboard in the launch. She's got a day's call in Miami, and your wife can join you there. Mercy? Take it. That's a good idea. Okay, I'll be right down. After scores left, I spent my time haunting the docks. A hundred times, I thought I saw them, walking along the street or hurrying out onto a waiting ship, but it wasn't them. Then gradually, a strange feeling occupied me. I lost the conviction that they were in New Orleans. Somehow, in some way, I felt certain they'd eluded me, slipped away. But how? How had they accomplished it? I made one last circle, walking from pier to wharf, covering as much of the waterfront as I could, one last time. Then, tired and thirsty, I stopped in a small bar, a place where seamen hang out. I met a Jamaican, a wiper, bought him a drink. Charles. Oh, need this drink, man. Just out of the infirmary, appendicitis. Rapture? That's rough. Captain had to set me ashore between Galveston and Miami. Nasty beat of business. What ship? Termuid, out of Sydney. Captain Larson's master now. Now I need another berth. That shouldn't be too hard. No. I'm sorry I missed it, though. Sailing to Galway and Dublin. Never been there, you know. You said the uh, Demuid was sailing to Ireland? Right-o. First port of call, Galway. Any stops between? One day only, Miami. Of course. Drink up. Galway, of course. What do these Pennsylvania tree frogs croaking into the night have in common with this 7th Avenue IRT Express? Listen to Daniel Mack's radio program every weeknight, 5 to 6 p.m. here on WRVR. How would you like to win one of the world's most exciting tape decks? The $1,000 four-channel TAC 3340S. The TAC tape deck that is just about every feature of a professional recording studio. Well, you may if you enter the FM Guide TAC four-channel sweepstakes. FM Guide, the monthly magazine which brings you in advance the best of the greater New York area's FM radio programs, wants to award you the incomparable TAC 3340S. The drawing will be held in New York City on October 1st, and you don't have to be present to win. Just pick up a copy of FM Guide's September issue in any newsstand, write your name and address on the cover, or a facsimile, and send it to TAC Contest, care of FM Guide, 1290 Avenue of the Americas, New York 1019. That's TAC 3340S, care of FM Guide, 1290 Avenue of the Americas, New York 1019. You could be the winner.
drove alone from New Orleans to Miami, not daring to stop. The captain had arranged for me to be brought aboard, and soon I was with Hugh again. Two weeks after that, we were dropped on the shore outside Galway, an old Irish port there almost from the beginning of time. We drove from Connaught to Connemara, through hamlets with names that fall from the lips like notes of music. Moycullen, Trindilly, Derenine, Alina Hinch, moors and rolling hills, and the gray rock crags of inlets sprayed by the lead-colored waters of the Atlantic. Near a tiny crossroad settlement by the sea, we found a little three-room cottage, whitewashed, cleansed by rains, and bleached by the sun. We could run no further. That's where we would stay. One night, eating our dinner by a turf fire. Take it away, Mercy. I'm not hungry. Do you hear it? There's something walking abroad tonight. Your imagination? No. Listen. It's only the wind. I hear it. It's there. It's the past, out there in the night. I'm going to boil some water and, and fill, fill the tub. A hot bath, honey. Good for your nerves. Come talk to me. I'm busy. To the police. New York City. What are you doing? If... If anything happens, accident, anything, look in my pocket. What are you saying? Only that I love you. The Dermot hadn't made a scheduled stop and departure in New Orleans. She wasn't carried in the Port Bullet. That's how I missed her. By the time I'd gotten the information on her, she'd reached Dublin and sailed on. The police in Ireland are a national organization. We alerted them, and ten days later, they informed us they'd traced the couple. I wired Superintendent O'Hara not to arrest them yet, just to keep them under wraps. On an island, there's small chance of escape. With warrants for the arrest of Hugh Rohan and Mercedes Turner and papers for extradition, I flew to Ireland. From Shannon, I took a bus to Limerick, Limerick to Galway by rail, in Galway City, I was met by Inspector Green. You have the necessary papers? Yes, I have. All in order. I've arranged for you to stay at the hotel. The papers will be approved this night. Oh, you're uh, not planning to pick them up until tomorrow? No, it's a bit of a drive to the cottage. Here's my car. Are you carrying a gun? Yes. Well, we don't carry them here. Well, you better tomorrow. It won't be necessary. He's armed. I know the man. He'll shoot it out. That would be foolish of him. Well, is it all right for me to carry mine? If you insist. Yes, I can arrange it. It's most unusual. I found it impossible to sleep that night. I'd been after them for so long. For nearly two months, I'd held on to an invisible tether, the other end loosely fastened to Rohan and Mercedes Turner. Now at last, when morning came, the final slack would be gathered in. I lay in the soft bed wondering what Rohan was doing. 
Did he know it was his last night of freedom? Did he hold Mercedes Turner in his arms, warm in his love? Through that night, Hugh lay close to me. He spoke only once. I'm cold, he said. Please keep me warm. I kissed him. And his lips were like ice. In the morning, he arose early, shaved, dressed with care. We sat together at the table having our coffee. It had begun to rain. What are you planning to do today? I don't know. There's a beautiful abbey at Kylemore. Shall we go see it? Perhaps, but it's a gloomy day. The rain will stop later on. Maybe then. Hugh? Those cars outside. Yes. I've been expecting them. Give me my gun. Hugh, no. Please, no. Where's your purse? No more killing, Hugh, please. We're officers of the law. You're under arrest. Don't, Hugh. You're not a murderer. Don't. They won't separate us. Not ever again. I stood in front of the cottage door, rain splashing against my collar, running down my neck. The end of the trail, line drawn in. Suddenly the door swung open and Rohan's revolver stared me in the face. I threw myself to the ground. When he fired the second time, I shot him. Quibbs! Oh, Are you hurt? No. Lucky bit for you. Yes. Yes, isn't it? Yeah, if you don't mind, uh, I'll go in alone to get the woman. Mercedes Turner. I'm Mercedes Rohan. Your husband is dead. Yes. Did you know there were blanks in his gun? Yes, I knew. Did you put them there? <gasps> yes. So we wouldn't kill again. He didn't know. I tried to stop him. Maybe it's just as well. Williams, this was in his pocket. Uh, thank you. He, he said, in case of an accident. To the police, New York City. I alone shot and killed Albert Turner. My wife, Mercedes Turner Rohan, was not responsible in any way. It's signed Hugh Rohan. Hugh. <laughs> oh, Hugh. 
Hockey's newest professional team, the New York Golden Blades, presents the world's first hockey spectacular in Madison Square Garden with Gordie Howe versus Bobby Hull, Ted Green against Andre Lacroix, New York's Harry Howell, and hundreds of other hockey stars in a six-period, four-team round robin. The date is Tuesday, September 25, at 7.30 p.m. The place is Madison Square Garden. Choice seats are still available at the Garden for you and your friends and your family at regular prices. If you want tickets starting at $2 for this once-in-a-lifetime professional hockey event with Howe and Hull, hockey's greatest superstars, get your tickets while they last. For reservations, call Madison Square Garden, 212-564-4400, 212-564-4400, or the New York Golden Blades Direct at 212-239-4875 or any Ticketron office. That concludes this week's production of The Zero Hour. Bill S. Ballinger's The Wife of the Red-Haired Man. Next week, we'll begin another exciting dramatization of a tale of mystery and suspense. We'll tell our story in five days, at the same time, Monday through Friday. So on Monday, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. This week, Bill S. Ballinger's The Wife of the Red-Haired Man, Patty Duke Astor was Mercedes, John Astin was Rohan, Howard Duff was Detective Williams. Featured in the cast were Harold Gould as Detective Scores, Stanley Adams was Crosley, Don Pedro Colley was The Sailor, and Richard Peel was Green. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is the executive producer and Karen Lee Cohen, associate producer. Music conducted and composed by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher. It is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in Monday and once again, rest your eyes. And listen here to the Zero Hour. This is Les Davis. My father was really proud when I told him about my four-hour show here on WRPR. Of course, he's not too happy that I have to stay up until midnight. Oh, but is he happy I got a job. Why don't you sample my work starting weeknights at 8 on WRVR?